0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time 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 for for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. This week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. for having me. And Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan and the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week continue to report new coronavirus cases linked to a cluster infection at a preschool and an apartment complex in New Taipei's Banqiao district. The total number of cases in that cluster as we're recording the show stands at 33 and genome sequencing results have shown that at least 21 of the patients in the cluster have been infected with the Delta variant of the disease. However, Health Minister Chen Zhong told reporters during his daily press briefing on Tuesday that the situation is under control and there are no immediate plans to tighten disease prevention restrictions and according to Chen the latest infections do not reflect any further spread of the disease into the broader community now the Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday reported a new Delta variant case that sent some alarm bells ringing after it was announced that it involved a woman in her 20s who cleans airplane cabins at Taoyuan International Airport now she tested positive for the virus as part of route routine testing of airport staff and the epidemic command center said that although genome sequencing results shows she is infected with the delta variant further analysis is needed to determine whether the case is connected to the recent clusters involving that variant and the central epidemic command center went on to say that health officials are also investigating the possibility that she was infected as a result of her work cleaning airplane cabins now local governments this week reported that the take-up rate of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine amongst students aged between 12 and 17 has been rather high. And Education Minister Pan jong said some 93% of students aged between 12 and 18 are now expressing a willingness to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. Now, according to Pan, that figure has been calculated based on the number of letters of consent from parents in major cities allowing their children to be inoculated. And the government is, of course, scheduled to begin rolling out the vaccine on September the 22nd to students in the basically 12 to 17 age bracket. However, while the government is now set to roll out the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine, there's some concern about a short supply of Moderna coronavirus vaccine doses. Now, questions have been raised about the availability of Moderna vaccine doses as some 2 million people are waiting for their second shot and some 1 million others are still waiting for their first shot. There are, as we speak, currently about 240,000 doses in stock. However, 1.08 million doses of the Moderna coronavirus vaccine purchased directly from the manufacturer are stated to arrive in Taiwan this evening. Now, the government has Ordered a total of 5.05 million doses of Moderna vaccine from the American drug maker. And the health minister this week said the government has also signed a contract to purchase 36 million doses of the Moderna vaccine, while negotiations on new orders from AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech are also in the pipeline. And the health minister says that that means that Taiwan will have enough coronavirus vaccines to be administered in third and fourth booster shots if necessary over the next two years meanwhile amid concern over short vaccine supplies um, basically more jabs are needed and possibly mix and match is needed we've talked about mix and match on the show before but this week the National Taiwan University Hospital's Ethical Review Committee approved an application to conduct human trials of mixed Moderna and Taiwan's domestically produced Medigen vaccines now according to the hospital some 220 volunteers aged between 20 and 70 who have received one shot of the Moderna vaccine eight to 12 weeks ago will be participating in the trial and the trial is due to begin next week at the earliest and also basically staying with the coronavirus news because there's rather a lot of it this week the island's main pilot union warned that its members are having difficulty being seen by doctors at hospitals and clinics alike due to their being considered at rather high risk of contracting the coronavirus now a headline in the UK's Telegraph above an article written by a regular Taiwan This Week guest Nicholas Smith summed up the situation and it screamed people think pilots are murderers because we brought the virus back. Now the Central Epidemic Command Centre says it now plans to establish designated facilities for members of flight crews to seek medical attention due to the situation. And the Taoyuan Pilots Union says it understands the concern as some pilots have violated quarantine regulations but that number is very small and it shouldn't mean that members of flight crews are denied medical treatment for non-coronavirus related issues. Now, the Epidemic Command Centre so is working to set up the special areas for pilots and other flight crew members and medical facilities in Taipei, Taoyuan, Taichung and Kaohsiung. So, Brian, a lot to digest there, but let's look at the, the concern about the Moderna vaccine dearth thereof.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, Part of the issue is supply and Taiwan has experienced delays with any of its purchases, and that includes Moderna. Um, it's quite ironic, because in the beginning, the public was very fixated on Moderna, viewing Moderna as the only safe vaccine, but then it ends up being so slow to arrive. So in theory, with these purchases, Taiwan should have enough for uh, next year and in the future, but there's still the question about when will these arrive. So it's quite interesting now that we're seeing these trials for mixing and matching uh, in terms of uh, Medigen vaccines and Moderna vaccines. Uh, this would be probably too late to alleviate the current, so to act on the current outbreak uh, with regards to the testing results, and uh, so this is probably meant for the future in terms of thinking about booster doses. I think also because Taiwan has ordered such a large amount of Moderna for the future, that indicates that vaccination in the future for subsequent years will be relying on Moderna, and so then it makes sense to try and mix Medigen with Moderna specifically. Um, I think Taiwan is also, or particularly the Science Station, also is considering what to do with Medigen in terms of uh, using it for booster shots, uh, in terms of encouraging the public to use it, uh, also, in thinking about the future uses of uh, Medigen, perhaps as a booster shot, and promoting it abroad in terms of other countries that could potentially take it up. Uh, for example, third uh, uh, pop phase three trials are undergoing outside of Taiwan in some countries. And so I think uh, it's one of those issues. And so I think uh, there's it's still a question from the side here as uh, to whether the effects on the current outbreak can be alleviated through um, on the shortage of are can
0: be alleviated currently.
1: So Donovan, I mean, mix and matching with the local Medigen vaccine. Obviously, that's going to have its naysayers from the get-go. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's quite a bit of opposition coming out of the Pam Blue camp. Obviously, then there were lawsuits filed against the approval process. Um, so uh, there, there is, uh, they, and of course their primary objection is that only the stage two uh, trials were held and, and they're held in a country with basically no, with no actual uh, cases at the time. Now, of course, uh, the, uh, you know, the, um, the, uh, the FDA and the government was looking at the antibodies produced and I, I'm not going to go into the science of it, but it sounds From a layman's perspective, fairly reasonable that the body showed an antibody response that is equivalent to or better to uh, or better than uh, already previously approved vaccines from overseas that have undergone stage three trials. Uh, so there is going to be some controversy coming from that end. Now, the there will be another controversy, controversy for only, for a very small subset of people, and that is that if you mix in the Medigen, Medigen is not generally recognized overseas. So those people who either get uh, two doses of Medigen or get one and mix and match with another one, they may have trouble traveling or in certain cases where countries expect um where they, where they require vaccination, they may look at that and they may not accredit it.
1: And, of course, Brian, we've seen school children are, there's lots of them want to be vaccinated, which is good news.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so, according to statistics, uh, 93% of students are willing to be vaccinated, and so that is quite high. Um, and rollout is proceeding uh, on schedule. I mean, for example, a new type of a science to vaccinate a lot of its students on uh, September 22nd and then to give them two days of online classes so they can uh, stay at home and recover. Um, so it's good particularly because other vaccines are not able to affect uh, students of that age that are younger, they are under 18. Um, and so particularly as we see with the Banjiao cluster, just, there's concern about just vaccines and children, that children who are unvaccinated may prove potentially uh, liable to spreading the coronavirus. And so uh, uh, I think uh, it's interesting there that uh, particularly after all these kind of older people that are maybe more pan blue are calling for biotech, uh, the first priority goes to students. And so it's not surprising too that the second group after that is probably to target uh, the older demographics that are, are uh, perhaps unwilling to take other vaccines. So, for example, Category 9 and those above 65, if I recall correctly, are the next demographic that was targeted once students are vaccinated with a uh, BioNTech.
1: Donovan?
0: Yeah, no, uh, th- this is interesting. Uh, there's sort of two things I- I'd like to add to what Brian said. Um, now, first, I-, I think it's quite remarkable that the the rate's are over 90%. I mean, Zhang Hua, for example, it's 96% of... Uh, students gave approval to uh, get the and and this is after the the you know, the Jianghua County government said they can't actually force the kids to get the vaccine. Ninety-six uh, percent uh, said they would, and um, again, it's ninety percent across the country it appears, and that really actually speaks quite a bit to how well the government has done communicating their message and how much trust the government has built in their. Uh, in their methods and in their processes, and the transparency of, of most, not all, but most of what they've been doing. So there is a widespread sense that the government can be trusted with this. Now, there is one potential, and I want to emphasize this as potential if maybe um an article just came out in the guardian here with the headline boys more at risk from Pfizer jab side effect than covid uh, suggests study now this is a university of california study and i should uh emphasize here this is only in the united states that it it's been done it hasn't been peer reviewed and so it's just come out and the data here and i'd like to un- you know point out here that we're talking about here they they talk about here. They estimate the rate of myocarditis, uh, which is a heart inflammation condition, after two shots of Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, is one hundred and sixty-two point two cases per million. Now that's a pretty small percentage here. One point six two point two million per million for healthy boys aged twelve to fifteen, and ninety-four per million for healthy boys aged sixteen to seventeen. Now for girls, it was way way less older males, it drops off dramatically. This is very specific that there may be a higher risk for boys, particularly in the 12 to 15, but to a lesser degree, 16 and 17. And again, I'd like to you know, underscore that this is a, un, uh, a not a peer-reviewed uh, and it's again only U.S. data here. Um, but this does raise a potential alarm bell that they're using the Pfizer BioNTech on 12-year-olds and up here in the schools, and this could potentially create more hospitalizations for boys than covid itself i don't think that this this study is yet a reason to stop uh... what they're doing but i think it's something that should raise a red flag they should be keeping an eye on and see if it's peer-reviewed or if data comes in from other countries that that can verify this again this is one study so can't judge too much on it but it's definitely something to keep an eye on because that is the vaccine that they're using Uh, they're rolling out in the schools here starting on the 25th.
1: And of course, Brian, that issue hasn't been played up by the local media yet, but no doubt in the coming days it possibly will be.
2: Uh, That's right, absolutely. Um, Because local media, if anything has shown during this outbreak, has had a tendency to jump onto any news story alleging dangers about vaccines, whether they are uh, peer-reviewed, fact-checked, or just random things on the internet, unfortunately. And so Taiwanese media oftentimes has very poor fact-checking practices uh, or actually just lack of expert um, consultation in terms of just checking with medical experts about uh, safety or um, just medical information and verifying it and that sort of thing. Um So BioNTech was viewed as one of the safer vaccines, along with Moderna, while the media particularly uh, focused on AstraZeneca and Medigen throughout the course of this outbreak, uh, alleging dangers about those, while BioNTech and Moderna were positioned as a kind of safe one. And so it actually, I do think it is a little fortunate that the vaccine, which which has been approved for uh, vaccinating younger people is actually BioNTech and not another vaccine, in which case there would be probably parents that are concerned who would not want to use it and we might not be seeing this rate of 93% nationwide. Um, but in essence, once there does start to be BioNTech uh, vaccination, regardless of whether there are these effects or not, there are almost certainly to be other uh, incidents for example, like deaths that occur after vaccination for other causes. And the media will almost inevitably report on those as though they were caused. By BioNTech. and so because biotech vaccinations are just starting, this hasn't occurred yet with biotech, but it definitely will occur. Um, there's also deaths after moderna vaccinations for other causes. Uh, there has not been anything proven, but the media is also just seized on it now, and so it'll be seen how that gets uh, touted in the discourse. I do think that because the KMT championed the importation of BioNTech uh, first through calling for purchases by local governments and then through uh, Terry Foxcon Foxconn uh, arranging for the vaccine purchases, along with TSMC and the uh, religious organization, the Pam camp might actually attack less on this issue. So it's possible that uh, there won't be as much reporting or focus on the potential dangers of biotech because the Pam camp will want to take this as a political accomplishment uh, to credit itself for that, that it brought in, let's say, the best, safest vaccine to Taiwan. Um, But it could still become this kind of issue uh, if the media reports on it this way.
1: And Brian, what about these poor pilots? One chap broke his leg and was basically seen to outside a hospital.
2: Yeah, it's uh, one of those matters of concern because I think uh, particularly yeah. COVID really points to some of the, uh, ways, that are, it reveals the ways that our society is very dependent on a small set of people to keep things running at times. And that is definitely the case with pilots. Um, pilots are literally the they for transportation to and from Taiwan. Uh, the vaccines, for example, only can come in because there are pilots flying these planes to Taiwan. Um, at the same time, then, there's concern about pilots and uh, flight crews, uh, airport workers coming in contact with COVID-19 cases, and that is potentially inevitable. Um, and there's a question, too, I think, just of balancing safety but also personal freedom, uh, as well as keeping concerns about quarantine fatigue and, and lockdown fatigue in mind. Uh, because if pilots are just kept locked away all this time, unable to see their friends and families, uh, having long quarantine periods, that increases the odds that they might be willing to break the rules and potentially this would lead to an outbreak. Um, at the same time, then, just just how do you, how do you, how do you effectively achieve that balance? That's, that's the question, I think, in regards to pilots.
1: And, Donovan, of course, pilots getting a bad rap.
0: Uh, well, I, I think that's uh, kind of overblown. Um, I mean, obviously, there have been a couple of cases here, and that led to pr- pretty serious repercussions of uh, pilots behaving well. Um, rather noddly, I suppose you could say. Um, But the the fact of the matter is the majority of them aren't. Uh, The government has upped their monitoring of them. And uh, as Brian noted, I mean, these are people who are going to be far more at risk for being in contact, regardless of what precautions they take. Which is not really their fault, and they are a fundamental lifeline uh, for people bringing people's families together and home and keeping the economy moving and and so they're they're essential they're an essential part of keeping the country uh, functioning and people's families functioning and interaction with the rest of the world so and so they're kind of now on the front line and when when you hear a case where these doctors are treating the the leg outside of the hospital. That, to me, says a couple of things. What worries me more than that particular case is when they refuse to deal with them at all. That's an obvious violation of medical ethics. Um, they should be able to to deal with any kind of case that comes in, and and it does make sense that they should take special precautions when it comes to. Um, to pilots or uh, aircraft workers uh, and personnel because they are at increased risk of contract, contact, uh, contracting, uh, a, a yeah, the coronavirus. Now, interestingly, the, them doing that outside, there may actually be one, it sounds like they did a very slapdash job from the description I read, although to the doctor's credit, actually, Keep going outside means that you're going to have considerably better air ventilation. Ideally, you'd have a room inside the hospital where they could all be suited up with the right PPE and so on and so forth with an extremely well-ventilated room. To be fair, going outside is extremely well-ventilated, but it still seems like a a very poor practice to uh, basically cut off your supply lines or put a larger distance in case anything goes wrong during the medical procedure from the hospital, meaning that if anything goes wrong and they need any kind of medicine or any kind of support, that they have to go that much extra distance. So it sounds like poor preparation. They may have actually had a medical reason for doing it outside. But again, the descriptions I've read, and again, I don't know how reliable those are, Sound like they did a little bit of a slap job and actually dealing with the situation, so i don 't really know for sure, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, doctors do have a a they do have a responsibility to treat people regardless of what their occupation is, and they should be making sure that they have proper precautions in in place to deal with these kinds of situations, considering that it could come from anybody, not just pilots or Uh, flight personnel.
1: And you're, of course, here in Taichung. Donovan, of course, we had the Delta variant in New Taipei's Banqiao district. Is there concern in Taichung about the Delta variant?
0: Well, anything that happens inside of the borders of Taiwan, and to a certain degree, obviously, anywhere on the planet, because anywhere on the planet could actually get here. Um... And so anything, and then especially if anything's inside the country, because people, of course, do move around. However, that being said, uh, central Taiwan now has gone uh, roughly a month, I believe, since there's been a single case. Uh, Zhanghua might be just slightly less than a month where there was a a one case. Uh, Taichung is at at around five, five weeks or so with no cases. And Nanto hasn't had a case in over two months. So essentially, in the last three months, all of, in the last two months, all of central Taiwan has had maybe two or three cases and only one in the last month or so, and none in three to four
1: weeks. And that's where we'll leave it for the first half of the show and that rather good news for central Taiwan, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and moving away from the coronavirus now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is remaining rather stumm about reports that the name of Taiwan's representative office in Washington, D.C. could change to include the word Taiwan instead of Taipei. The move was reported by the Financial Times, which said that the U.S. is seriously considering such a move, and it cited sources briefed on an internal U.S. discussion following a request by Taiwan last March that the name of its mission in the U.S. capital be changed from the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative representative office to the Taiwan representative office. Now the foreign ministry here in Taiwan is saying only that strengthening and upgrading its ties with the US has long been and remains the government's long-term objective, while the US State Department is simply refusing to comment on the Financial Times report, with a spokesperson saying only that Washington's support for Taiwan is rock solid and the US remains committed to keeping ties with Taiwan as they are. Needless to say though, Beijing was up in arms about this, with its embassy in Washington DC stating that it firmly opposes such a move. Now, the Global Times published a strong rebuke of reports that Washington is considering changing the name of Taiwan's De facto embassy in the US capital. And it says that basically, yeah, well, it clearly shows that the Biden administration is indicating that the United States is abandoning the one China policy and seeking to test China's response. And the Global Times piece went on to say that China's recalling of its ambassador from the United States can be expected if the title Taiwan is allowed, and its ambassador's recall is likely to be the minimum response by Beijing. So, Brian, I mean, do you think this will actually happen? Do you think Washington will actually say, yeah, rename it the Taiwan office? So
2: it's a good question, actually. Um, it's interesting to what extent this issue has become debated in D.C. among the policy circles. Um, there's an the argument that, yes, this is a strong sort of support for Taiwan. This should be done. Uh, there's also the argument that this is overly provocative of China. And there's also, the third, the argument that this is mostly semantics, that this doesn't actually accomplish a lot in terms of actually boosting support for Taiwan. It's just a way to poke China. And so that, instead, there should be a focus on more substantive ways of strengthening U.S.-Taiwan relations, such as pushing for trade relations and uh, facilitating trade talks, that sort of thing, um, that that might actually be more concrete than just changing its name. But I think uh, it just points to how this debate has uh, kind of discontinued in policy circles regarding U.S.-Taiwan towards, U.S. policy towards Taiwan. Uh, particularly the Trump administration was fond of doing actions that would uh, tick off China, um, seem to for Taiwan, and it would do it in a very flashy way, whereas the Biden administration has really sought to distinguish its approach from that. Uh, for example, when uh, diplomatic visits take place from high-ranking American government officials, those are announced very shortly before the visit, like a few hours, maybe the day of, sometimes afterwards, um, just you know once they are already in so long. Whereas the Trump administration really took the approach of announcing it way ahead of time, boosting it, uh, signaling very strongly in that sense, very overtly, that this is meant to show something to China. And so... There's been praise for the Biden administration's approach in that it is more low-key, uh, gives China less time to be provoked, um, and is actually maybe doing more than just using this as a kind of uh, way to just poke China. Um, but I think that that debate is still going on in D.C. regarding which way forward. And I think that that, that, that contestation between these uh, different camps arguing different things regarding U.S. policy towards Taiwan is, is what we really see in, in the reactions
0: to this uh, notion. Well, okay, I think there's there's sort of three big questions here. The first is who leaked this and why? I don't have a good answer on this. I see some speculation out there that it was someone who was trying to out Kirk Campbell and all kinds of stuff. It's all speculation, and I don't really know. Um, but uh, there, there is that question: who did leak it and why? And unfortunately, I, I'm guessing as much as anyone else. The second question is: Will Biden do it? And there's obviously a lot of support in in Congress for it. Uh, he maintains, or at least says he maintains, good ties with Congress, and so that's an issue. There is, I think, a lot of uh, gr- there's growing international support for it, and he has to make a decision on this. Right now you've got, you know, when Somaliland used Taiwan in the in the local office, kind of the world the world kind of shrugged. Nobody recognizes Somaliland, so who cares was the attitude I think. When Lithuania announced that they would be including Taiwanese, that was a much bigger deal. And Lithuania has very little exposure to China as far as trade. China's promises to the 17 plus one Eastern Bloc countries for investment and and uh, trade have really largely been not materialized, and so Lithuania left that, and they have a strong stance on human rights, and they have their own issues with an authoritarian, a threatening authoritarian power uh, next door. So there's a lot of sympathy, I think, there in Lithuania, and you'll notice that there's been some other countries recently uh Slovakia and uh Czechia and uh Poland have started showing more support for Taiwan including um, uh holding those online uh, global this was it the GCTF um, uh forum uh, international forums and they've been hosting them which brings together a lot of countries with Taiwan to tackle global issues so you're starting to see more support from eastern europe now if the united states makes a move to To do this, if Biden goes ahead and signs it, this will signal to a lot of the world that you can go ahead and do this. You can go ahead and start treating Taiwan with considerably more respect. Now, as to the argument that this is not really actually something substantive, the thing is, in a lot of cases, and I've seen this quote uh, put out there, it's not for me, is that in a lot of cases, when it comes to symbolism with Taiwan, symbolism is substance and if the united states takes takes the lead or follows i should say the lead of lithuania and the u.s backs the lithuania's move and does it itself that will unleash the gates for not just symbolic upgrading of relations with taiwan that will bring within its wake i believe some actual substantive increases and you're seeing this out of recently out of switzerland out of the eu you know the parliaments are standing up all over the world and passing bills saying we need to you know improve relations with with taiwan now if biden says no and that would be very very damaging now that this report is out if this report had not come out and Nobody knew that it was a possibility, and he didn't find it. It wouldn't have been an issue. But now that this report is out there, now that the Global Times has uh, gone apoplectic about it, um, and there's been a lot of coverage of it, if the United States backs down and Biden walks away from this, this will put a crimp on A lot of the recent moves, there's been a lot of dynamic and positive moves on Taiwan's relations with the rest of the world as the rest of the world wakes up to China's threat. Um, And Taiwan's menacing of Taiwan and themselves, more and more countries are aware of this. And if Biden declines to take the lead on this, this will slow down that momentum uh, dramatically. And again, because when it comes to Taiwan, that symbolism is substance. So it will put a big damper on worldwide moves to improve relations with Taiwan. So I, I, I'm watching this very, very closely to see what Biden does.
1: So, Brian, if, if Joe Biden balks at the issue. Yeah, that's right. I think
2: it will perceive, be perceived as a
1: move against Taiwan or, or
2: declining to strongly support Taiwan. Uh, I think uh, particularly it is that this is very much uh, caught in court politics in D.C. in which different factions or groups are arguing different things because they are contending for influence and power within the Biden administration over China policy, but also foreign policy more largely. Um, I think this is uh, similar, actually, in terms of, uh, particularly framed by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, in which, for example, you had those who called for uh, who said that this would lead to stronger U.S. support for Taiwan. There were people that argued that this meant that the U.S. should stay out of uh, provoking China and avoid these kind of adventurous moves, and etc. And, and, and so, I think. um... This debate is yet to be settled, um, so I think it's absolutely right that if the U.S. does go ahead with this move, this signals to other countries that it's also okay to do similarly. Um, it's critically significant because of the security relations between the U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, Japan also made uh, similar moves in the past, and I think then particularly would be I, there would be eyes then turned to other uh, security potential security partners of Taiwan in the region, uh, particularly Australia after the uh, nuclear submarine deal with the U.S. Regarding what they take and what stance they take. Um, And it's also true that actually, because it is mostly just changing a name, it is semantic, there's a very low barrier to actually doing this for other countries. It's a way to rather easily show support for Taiwan, uh, in which this has a discursive effect. So you don't actually have to do anything about substance. It's really just announcing a name change, uh, holding press conferences, circulating it, changing the plaque itself, etc. And so this is also, uh, there's a low barrier to entry for other countries doing this. Um, So it's interesting, too, seeing this kind of wave of support that Taiwan has had, really, from Eastern European countries, in which vaccine donations were used to signal support for Taiwan. And as a uh, signal for support for Taiwan is also meant to signal, I think, alignment with the U.S. and its partners in terms of uh, where, where uh, global geopolitics is concerned. But this could potentially be another way to do so. It would become another move in the repertoire of showing support for Taiwan in this way. And so that, that would be quite interesting.
1: And turning to local political news this week, and while we discussed the KMT leadership elections televised policy presentation last week, this week saw some iry feelings and angry words amongst some of the contenders for the KMT's top job. Now, Sun Yat-sen School President Zhang Ya jong found himself squaring off against former party chairwoman Hong Shou-Ju over claims that he'll be looking to borrow some five million US dollars to help the KMT out of its financial dilemma. Zhang says that he's going to borrow the money for a friend in Malaysia, but of According to him, need, if he needs to do that, well he needs a promissory note from the KMT promising that the loan will be repaid. Now Jung this week also faced possible referral to the KMT's disciplinary committee and he faced that move due to charges that he set out to persistently verbally attack former new Taipei mayor and KMT chair hopeful Eric Ju during the election campaign. Now the KMT's election supervisory body has now revoked any decision to refer Jung to the disciplinary committee but the dispute is ongoing going donovan
0: yes um things have really turned hot in the kmt race i mean in the beginning it looked like um when jang yajong first announced it looked like he was going to sink like he always has in the past because he's run for kmt chair before lost badly he ran in the last presidential uh primary in the kmt lost badly and his ideas are, uh, within the KMT, are considered a little bit out there. He, he's had some, uh, he's come up with some theories which, even by KMT standards, seemed a little bit extreme, um, but he was, and of course he, he was involved in helping uh, Hong Xiu-Ju craft her uh, absolutely winning, I'm being sarcastic there, Um platform that uh, obviously bombed and the party essentially dropped her in the 2016 election. Now, he came out during the debates uh, railing against um, basically everything that's happened after uh, after um, Zheng, uh Jang Jinghua passed away, and he was praising Jang Jinghua and widely, con- you know, uh, condemning uh, Li Denghui and the DPP, and going on about how you know is this the country that Sun Yat Sen envisioned, and and this kind of thing, which is obviously way outside of the mainstream. But what he's actually caught fire with is the deep blues within the party, and. What I found very, very interesting is, is that if you superficially listen to a lot of the talk coming out of Eric, uh, Eric Chu, uh, Zhu Li Lun, or uh, Johnny Chang, uh, Jiang Jitzen, uh, at the it, it, coming out of the debates and a lot of the, uh, their Facebook comments and public comments and so on and so forth, your first, your, first, your first impression coming out of it is it sounds very much like 2008 or it sounds very much like Ma ying uh, but what I found very interesting is that there was a little bit of dissonance. Now, keeping in mind that both of them have been spending a lot of time with the bass, uh, Eric Chu or Julie Luan actually went on a, uh, Ma style listening tour, and Johnny Chang has been trumpeting all of the time that he's been spending out with the bass, with students, and that's, and that sort of thing. And both of them, while the, and, while they're pitching the KMT base. Now, the KMT base generally is older, more conservative, and self-selecting fairly deep blue if they're going to go out and pay their membership dues and be active in the party. So this is a a very conservative deep blue uh, market that they're trying to pitch to to get themselves elected as KMT chair. What I found very, very interesting is that Well, if you listen to it, it was all 92 consensus, all of this sort of Meyer stuff. But what was I found very interesting is there was one thing very noticeably missing and one thing where the definition had changed dramatically. The thing that was missing is you'll notice that all the way up through to the uh, 2020 campaign, there's a basic line, and it was one of the most popular ones that particularly Ma ying used to great effect. But as part of that, Ma Ying-jeou Liang Su uh, what's become KMT orthodoxy, the post 2000 era when the party pivoted, and is now the par- par- party orthodoxy it was the 92 consensus. And opening up to China will bring prosperity and riches and Taiwan will boom and all these interactions with China will be a positive thing. That was dropped by both Eric Chu and Johnny Chang. Neither one of them said really anything to that effect or anything particularly seriously to that that effect. The other thing that I found very interesting is the definition of protect the ROC. And you'll notice that both of them use this quite heavily. Protect the ROC. Johnny Chang has a shirt he's been wearing constantly, ROC forever. Now, that meant, up until fairly recently, when Ma ying jo would say it, that meant protecting the ROC from Taiwan independence types. But now it seems that a lot of what they mean is protecting it not just from Taiwan independence types, but also from the PRC. So the position of the two has been shifting toward not a positive engagement toward China, but a defensive engagement toward China. So you'll notice that, for example, Eric Chu very specifically came out and said, we'd like to have more cultural interactions, but we'd like to depoliticize the relationship. No talk of common prosperity or riches like (laughs) Hanguo or Ma and uh, the talk from both of them was, we need to open up lines of communication with China to reduce tensions. Neither of them, again, was really talking about a, a, a happy, positive relationship with China, rather one of containment and mitigating potential damage.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think that is quite interesting because of the fact that uh, discourse has shifted in the Keynesian way. Uh, Johnny Chang and Eric Chu in the past were more moderate. Uh, during the debate, for example, they did emphasize this ROC messaging. They lead more heavily into that to appeal to the base. Um, but then I think the party hardliners would view them as potentially just going back to this moderate message once the chair elections end, if they are elected. The uh, things that they were attacked on, for example, were being too close to the U.S. in the past. And I feel like uh, Zhang Yajong and uh, Zhou Bo the Zhanghua County Magistrate, Uh, We're both kind of angling to be the deep green candidate. I think this has been a specter looming over the chair debates for quite a while. Uh, When Zhao Shaogang announced that he was running, then it was true, then he would have positioned himself as the deep blue candidate, uh, representing this increasingly vocal constituency within the KMT in past years. Um, Also, the fact that military veterans play such a role in the KMT, so we need their votes. Um, But then um, Zhang Yatong is the one that managed to get that spotlight. And it's actually very interesting the way that he has actually alienated former political allies, including Hong kyo who he is a former aide of. Uh, he is the head of the Sun Yat-sen School, which is one of these party ideological education institutions, which was set up by, by Hong kyo And he was named to that position by her. In the past, he campaigned on her behalf. Uh, but this time, just in terms of his offer, uh, he has broken from her. And this offer is a little strange, too, because the reason why John has done so well this time compared to his other... A strange efforts at running for office is because of the fact that he claimed he could facilitate vaccine donations from China of 5 million biotech vaccines and 5 million uh, Sinopharm vaccines from a uh, cross-strait cultural institution in China. And so this is a little odd because just producing five, uh, 10 million vaccines like that, particularly biotech vaccines, at a time in which China had not actually approved BioNTech vaccines was, was quite odd. And now he's claiming he can produce 5 million uh, US dollars. but the question always is then where is this actually coming from? The, the Chinese vaccine donations can only occur with the approval and support of the Chinese government. Uh, it's also that this, uh, the amount of money that he's offering here could also be potentially coming from China through an intermediary. And so I think that is, is quite key to key an eye on uh, in terms of what forces within the team he has China align itself with. And you know, China has sometimes been uh, more a fan of Hong Hyoju and the Deep Blue despite their lack of electoral viability than it has been of Johnny Chang and Eric Chu, uh, Johnny Chang having proposed once he took office originally as KMT chair, dropping the 1990 consensus, but as we see now, it's kind of swung the other way where the 1990 consensus is king and it rules dominance over the uh, KMT discourse on cross relations in this way. Um, I think it points to the fact that this discourse has shifted quite a lot within the KMT towards the deep blue spectrum. Um, and I think it's interesting then that polling, according to TVBS, shows Zhang Jong had higher than Eric Chu at this point. Uh, which is why I think he's focused so much attention on attacking Eric Chu as the, as the other possible person to kind of, you know, picking them off one by one and going after Johnny Chang after them. And so this is quite interesting development in that sense.
1: And before we go this week, we haven't talked about green energy for quite a while, but it made the news here this week with Siemens Gamasa Renewable Energy inaugurating Taiwan's first nacelle assembly plant. Now, the assembly facility is located in Taichung Port and it's the first such plant dedicated to offshore nacelles outside of Europe. And speaking at the inauguration ceremony, Vice Premier Shenrong Jin described completion of the plant as being a milestone for Taiwan's efforts to become a regional hub for the offshore wind farm industry. And he went on to say that the assembly facility is also a major step forward in localizing the supply chain for offshore nacelles. So, of course, Donovan, this is in your neck of the woods. And it looks like it's good news. Obviously, Taiwan has had trouble with its its wind energy because it's had to import all the parts, basically. But now it can basically make a big chunk of them here in Taiwan.
0: Uh, yeah, on the surface, it, it definitely looks like uh, good news. Um, it's a giant uh, taijung Port, a 30,000 square foot um, facility and it's going to everything from the testing to the production of it to, and then they ship it out from Taijung Port and they, uh, long term they want to use that facility to export to other parts of Asia so that uh, obviously this sounds like great news um, and of course uh, you're starting to see more and more uh, coming online or will be coming online, the offshore wind farms. So all, all of that looks like good news, um, and there are some signs of progress. On the other hand, so far, pretty much almost every step of the way uh, on offshore wind has been plagued with problems of some form or another. Uh, some which are sort of self-imposed. For example, uh, Wang Hui Mei, uh, she didn't. She refused to re-up on uh, licenses, which meant that companies like Orsted couldn't get in the feed-in tariffs before a deadline, and then they got a much worse deal as a result of the John Huang County government dragging their heels and they nearly pulled out of the country uh, at one point. Um, Of course, we've had the pandemic, which has created problems. And there have been some signs, for example, there was an article in Commonwealth that uh, brought up a whole lot of issues, including is kind of ridiculous regulations that, for example, there's a lot of ports uh, up and down Taichung and Jonghua, the coast there, that, that if you go out and, say, you do maintenance and you get sick, you can't go to the nearest port. Legally, you can only go back to your port of origin. You can't go, and there's a lot of these kinds of things where Taiwan really has not, hasn't had the experience, hasn't changed its regulations to really accommodate it. So this is still very much a work in progress. But this particular facility uh, could, if if these problems are worked through, could potentially be a big deal long term, because they are looking at developing offshore wind in a lot of other countries in the region.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the uh, climate station particularly likes to tout uh, development in terms of renewable energy as an accomplishment. I mean, it puts Taiwan on in the international stage, uh, working with, with uh, international companies from abroad, uh, leaders in their industry to do this, and Taiwanese companies working with them to shift to renewable energy. But at the same time, then, I think the same issues, building international ties or allowing for international trade, applies here in terms of uh, just the, the, the hoops that people have to jump through in order to get this done regarding regulation. Uh, oftentimes, both visa issues, um, experts, etc. And so I think this applies here with wind power. So I, I also just don't think it will be as simple as just it's done and now Taiwan has this good thing in the future. But it, it, it's uh, these kind of longer standing issues that have prevented this from occurring earlier, I think, will apply.
1: And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Donovan Smith and great to be back and thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICR2 with me Gavin Phipps and don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows
0: Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week and don't forget to also check
1: out our podcast on our website icrt.com.tw Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100